cooking Italian food, there are a few rules. And Rita, being Italian, I'm a Californian, the rules are seasonality. You're not going to get asparagus in December. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. On today's episode, I catch up with Rita Sodi and Jody Williams, the proprietors of Via Carota and a number of other popular, well, say wildly popular restaurants in New York City. On this colorful episode, we talk about what it's like to run restaurants in multiple countries and about what went into their latest cookbook, Via Carota, how they revealed the secrets of one of New York City's favorite restaurants. It's a great cookbook, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation with them. Jody Williams and Rita Sodi, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. It's wonderful to have you on. I love that you say it at the same time. Okay, first off, Jody, do you have a favorite a restaurant of, uh, in your group? No favorites. Can't pick a favorite. But there's certain restaurants that have different meanings. I mean, Isodi, Bouvet, so much of our DNA, so much of uh, our origin story, and Via Carota, where we began working together. You know, Bar Pizzolino, getting into cocktails, and finally the Commerce Inn. So hard to pick. I mean, there's different things I like to eat in each one, different experiences. So I struggle, but... Is there one you spend the most time in? Mm, depends. I mean, I I spend, um, you know, where the need is. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be there for changing a menu here, or I need to be over here. You know, I'm on call. <laughs> yeah, and, and speaking of on call, Bouvet, you have two international uh, Bouvet locations, is that correct? Yeah, Bouvet's uh, opened up um, in um, Korea, South Korea, and it's uh, really exciting. We were over there in August, and Bouvet's in London, in Notting Hill. Oh, cool. In Paris, Mexico City, and Tokyo. Oh, wow. So you have four of them. That's amazing. So the one in your opening in, in Korea, is that in Seoul, I would imagine? Oh, yeah, we're in Seoul. We're in Ganam. Yeah. Oh, cool. So what's what is there any adjustment um to that location in Korea that you've made that you know because of sourcing or is it pretty like pretty straightforward Um probably the adjustment we made in uh, Seoul is uh we buy a lot more champagne <laughs> I, I, there is a party going on there it is I it's crazy you you will hear pop 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 through the whole night bottles open up Oh that's fun I mean it sounds convivial and fun Yeah no it is it's great <laughs> they have a great nightlife and uh it seems like it's a celebratory evening every night. And then, you know, we start early breakfast and coffee and stuff. So that's all happening. Yeah. Beautiful outdoor terrace. Is there a, a memory of food in Korea non when you weren't opening your restaurant that you had? That from There are a lot of really good restaurants in Seoul. Yeah. Seoul is great. Jody, you went to Isodi. You write beautifully in the book about that moment you went into the restaurant for the first time. It, it, it like it brought you somewhere that was not New York City, not the West Village, right? Yes, for I, I remember that day, and uh, I had a group of friends telling me to, "You've got to meet this woman. Do you know this woman?" And another group of friends telling me, "Have you been to uh, this place? You've got to eat in this place." And I always lived and was working in the neighborhood, 
And uh, I finally got there to Isodi and met Rita, and uh, here we are today. I mean, it was, what, 15 years ago? 15 years ago. 15 years and, ago. And it was fried artichokes. That seems to be one of the catalysts, one of the dishes, maybe? I love, the, yeah, fried artichokes and Negronis. Oh, cool. And, um, and then just a, written, a menu written by hand and cooked yeah. and then a restaurant that was really feeling Italian and not being contrived to fit into New York, you know what I mean, it, which was bold and risky, and I just admired it. And it resonated because of my experience uh, in Italy. Oh, I, it resonated with me the opening year of Isodi. It was, it was certainly a place I, I, I went to um, as a destination. I, I loved the, the restaurant. It was did take me to Italy. So thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, and do you remember that when you met Jody in the restaurant? Was there like a, was there like a, um, a, a an interaction that kind of started your partnership that would last, you know, to today? You know, I uh, there was this uh, uh, blonde woman coming quite often, sitting at the bar, sitting at the at the table with friend and everything, and uh, so I, I used I kind of, uh, you know. Uh, see this woman there and everything and a friend of mine she say uh, hey did you see that woman there and I say yeah I think she like you and I say come on stop it and <laughs> very like fourth grade right there very fourth grade I love it <laughs> cute I mean it's great and your partners in life and business and um, you write in the book via career you write about the relationship and your relationship through food um, I have to ask about the West Village. What, what's up with this neighborhood, why, Jody? Why, why is this neighborhood so important to you? Why, why operate there? That's a great question. Um, you know, uh, Rita had been living in uh, a few blocks uh, in one direction, and I got my first cooking job on Barrow Street. I think I got the job out of the Village Voice. Oh, yeah. And um, I showed up, and uh, I think it was called Melrose, and they said, go get changed. And I said, into what? Because I hadn't really thought it through, <laughs> you know, joining a, a kitchen, and I, I was uh, in there making the finishing desserts and uh, getting my my feet wet. Yeah, so those early memories of the West Village at this restaurant, what, what were you doing after shift? Were there some, I just like to, let's go back to that time. That like, what, like what, what, where were you going? What were some of the restaurants that... Well, I didn't go out. I didn't go out a lot, you know. I mean, I would exist on a, a bagel. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, some things. But I loved living in New York, and it was always a, a big adventure and um, an opportunity and challenge. And uh, Greenwich Village was home to a lot of just socializing and hanging out and partying and uh, things happening and, you know. You were going to Grinchel. Yeah, I went to Grange Hall. I mean, like her, you were into Grange Hall. I went to Grange That was Grange one Hall. restaurant we mm-hmm. remember. But just a, a lot of things in the neighborhood, you know, whether it's McNulty's Tea or, mm. you know, hanging out down at the Hudson River. Yeah. Do you feel like the next decade of New York downtown for restaurants is going to be a good one? Do you feel the story will be positive? I mean, I've, the pandemic has obviously been challenging, but do you feel like the trajectory is good? It seems like New York is coming back, yeah. you know, completely. So I guess so. Yeah, I would always bet on New York. Um, Love it. I think if you want, if you, you're passionate about something, you want to do something, you don't really care what the trajectory is or what, what the clouds are or, or mm-hmm. the bright skies. You go out and you do it. You build, you create, you succeed, you fail, and that's what's, and that is that's always, what's interesting. Yeah, it's always cloud. You know, sure. So... It's true. Like, there's always going to be some kind of... After 
after the Broken. how you say Nishani, after the tempest there is always uh, a other a there is always a sun come out so yeah I like that. It's optimistic. You you have a lot of optimism. Let's talk about Via Carota because this restaurant is the New Yorker Road is New York's most perfect restaurant. Well, how about that? That's quite the quote. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, that, that was very generous to, you know, uh, su- suggest that. Um, I don't know. It leaves me speechless. You know, yeah. uh, we love Via Carota. We love the community that it is. And I'm sure both Rina and I are far from anything but perfect, but if it if it means something to a lot of people, that's perfect. If it's something you can take away and it's someplace you want to go, that's perfect. I love that. That's well that's a sentiment's nice and I I think it um it captures the the um spirit of a neighborhood restaurant, right? And this restaurant is a neighborhood restaurant, but also it happens to be a neighborhood that has media, actors, fashion, design. It's like you're they're all washing into the the, the dining room of Via Carota. Your your guests are, are are some of New York's most interesting people, I would say. Yeah, Do, and but it's also a neighborhood that has a lot of people who've lived there dec- uh, generations. Yeah. I mean there's all layers. There's just not that interesting, shiny, bright layer. There's Love a lot it. of people there. I and you have like the, uh, some regulars who maybe are living there since the sixties in rent control or wherever their real estate situation is and they have good stories from the old like do they come in weekly? Do you have those kind of guests? Yeah, we have guests uh live in the neighborhood. We try to cater to the neighborhood. Uh it's super Super challenging. Restaurants in neighborhoods are, yeah. you know, um, can be a nuisance. It's a, you know, that's the reality. So you got to be a good neighbor. You got to be conscientious and where you are and all all of that. It's 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 true. And Rita, I have to ask you. I've been, I've been trying to work on this story for taste for a while because I think the neighborhood restaurant has changed since the past half decade. And I want to get your take. You know, neighborhood restaurants aren't always new American. Or they're not always pubs or bars. And, you know, Via Carota is a great example. What makes it this neighborhood restaurant that, you know, everyone local from the area likes to come to, you know, with frequency? I would say that it's, uh, it's a place where you, you know, you go to eat every day. You can eat every day. The place doesn't, you know, it's simple. And, uh, yeah. and it's, you know, for me and Jody, it's like a home. And we are trying to make everybody feel like a home, like, a, you know, it's it's your place. Yeah. You, you know, you're here for enjoying and, and have a good time and, and eat some good food. We hope so. And uh, and so that's why uh, we open for people, the feeling and everything. Yeah. So I think why people, you know, come. We have a lot of customers that come more, more than one a week. So it's for me, it's 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 it's. It's not just customer. It's just like uh, happy to have people that they have desire to come there for two times yeah. a week or more than one time. You know, I, th- I think there's a simplicity about it yeah. that, like for example, take the menu. Uh, the, the heart of the menu is twenty vegetable dishes that rotate seasonally. So you can actually frequent and eat there and feel good and find different things, where it's not just in an occasional restaurant. But there's there's a lot of great things happening in the neighborhood, and, and uh, it's great to see things opening up and oh, sure. business bouncing back. 
I like that you say uh, vegetables and, and seasonality because the book is really focused on uh, that. I mean, the book is about cooking through the seasons. It's a four-season cookbook, and I, I really like that um, concept. Why structure it then as, like, was it something that you just felt you had material from the restaurant? Jody? do you feel like this is a uh, an inherent part of your restaurant that you have this seasonality? Is that what, what made you want to write it by the seasons? Cooking Italian food, there are a few rules. And Rita, being Italian, I'm a Californian, the rules are seasonality. You're not going to get asparagus in December. Yeah. And that's not her, you know, history or, you know, what was happening in her in her home. So there's no other way really to for us to approach Italian food. So you 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 cook what is in season and we organize the book so that you're going through the seasons. And um, so there might be 10 tomato, not 10. That's a little exaggeration. But we probably have 10 different tomato recipes and five Mm -hmm. different asparagus recipes and. I love artichokes and spent a lot of time cleaning artichokes. So there's, there's that a handful of artichoke recipes. So. I love and, and I like your point of view on this question because it says it seems like there's a cliche. It's like Italian food is like a perfect tomato served on a plate, and then French food is like you know a potato that's been beat up for you know six weeks in the in the walk-in, and you're 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 making it beautiful with all sorts of other ingredients. And do you find that's fair, or is that extremely off base? I think that's pretty much off base. I love think it. You can go and, you know, I, French food is fresh and lovely and can be simple and can be complex and can be creative and can be everything. And, it, the you know, the best of a, Italian food for us is, um, you know, the seasonality and, and the freshness. And we're looking for, you know, the, the book is filled with recipes that have uh, stories behind them. Yeah. That Rita had in, uh, as a child growing up, things that I learned and to cook when I was there, things we both love to eat, things we want to create just for Via Carota. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's – I love the pushback because I expected you to say that. So, <laughs> I, I, no, it, I was I was leading the witness a little bit. Um, you write about greens, bread, and olive oil. Those are the three constants on your table. And, and Rita, why are these staples called out in the book as constants? Greens, olive oil, and bread. Olive oil is the, I don't know, is the soul of, of the Italian, yeah. Italian uh, cuisine. And, uh, you know, bread is, the, you know, is the, the, the one that goes next to, the, 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 mm-hmm. next to it. So that is something that you, you need to have in your table. And, you know, and so it's, it's, there is no doubt mm-hmm. about it. So it's something like uh, if I... If I do at home, I don't even think about, you know, they, they go on the table without me thinking, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they are there. It's, it, it's make, they make the table. If they're not there, there is no table, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if it makes sense, but uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 they are there. Yeah. They're and, just there. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can obviously make so many things out of those three constants, you know, it's yeah. so many dishes in the book. So let's talk about squash blossoms. I I just have to say when that season comes along, or you I mean maybe it's not seasonal in certain parts of the country, but in the East Coast it's seasonal. Why why is it such an obsessive thing? I feel like chefs put on menus everywhere. Uh, diners just cr- like love it. They they order a lot of squash blossoms, right? 
Well, because there's a brief moment where you have a perfect zucchini blossom available yeah. that you can fill with mozzarella or you can wilt into a risotto or frittata. And so capturing that moment, like when ramps first yeah. appear. So seasonality is about like capturing that moment mm-hmm. and then, you know, feeding yourself and then moving on and then, and then ultimately getting bored and like, okay, enough <laughs> with cabbage um so yeah yeah it's a good point because it is such a fleeting season here and and then the fried squash blossoms stuffed with something delicious is i feel like you have to order it you have to (laughs) yeah you You go through a few at the restaurants a few orders Uh, yeah just a few of them (laughs) just a few um i want to you know give our listeners some tips i'd like to hear your thoughts on Dried pasta and jarred tomato sauce. These are two constants in many people's tables. We, we often don't have fresh greens and olive oil and bread. We might, but we definitely have dry pasta and jarred tomato sauce. How do I, as a home cook, turn those two constants into something interesting for a quick dinner? Dried pasta is uh, a staple. I mean, durum flour, right? I mean, so yeah. I would say you have to learn how to cook pasta, but ultimately you're going to cook how you want to eat. And I think that's the nuance. But for us, dried pasta, salting the water, boiling, cooking time, and then lifting the pasta out, utilizing the water to make a sauce is uh, probably all key elements that we'd want to share to to make that box of pasta um, really great. I mean, who doesn't like aglio olio? Mm-hmm. Rita, how many times do you make aglio olio for oh, I don't, I don't guests even. or staff or at the last minute? Mm-hmm. I don't even know many times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the favorite. It's a great, like, fill-in dish if you are doing a coursed-up meal as a home cook or a dinner party and you, like, mess something up, aglio olio. So oh, you're just hungry. <laughs> or just hungry, right. Yeah. So when you—I love this. Let's talk about the salting of uh, the water and then lifting out um, and then incorporating some of that pasta water into the sauce. Is there a tip or a technique there, Rita? It's incorporated. You need you need the liquid or, you know, and, and, the, and the water, pasta water with, with the—is the, is the best one to, to, to make everything together, to put everything together, mm-hmm. to all the flavor together. You know, and, and the starch that is in the water coming from the pasta is helping all, all of yeah. that in, in, in uh, you know, doing it and everything. So it's, it's, a, it's not a short, you know, it's not just one thing and you do once. No, it's, you know, you go over and over, salt it, salt it until you don't see, then everything is, is together. Like mulsified or yeah, yeah. married, the handshake of the pasta and the exactly. sauce. Exactly, handshake, yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful scene, you know, when you see the chef toss the sauce together with everything. I want to he- hear about, is there a jarred pasta sauce that's worth buying, Jody? Like, do you have any? No, oh, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't answer that. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you, oh, I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm sure it, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it will be. I don't know, but uh, for sure they are. And uh, I think uh, the best sauce you can make home with simple and everything. You just buy some tomato uh, puree or yeah, and you just cook with nice garlic. And if you have basil, otherwise in in winter time just garlic, and you let cook and go evaporate all the water and everything when you're at that point and you have a nice uh, spaghetti on top of that, 
Hundred percent agree. Like a good Muti puree, like a yeah. good brand of yeah. of, of yeah. Italian tomatoes. Um, yeah. Have you guys been approached to do a jarred sauce? I feel like I see every. I see even Carbone. You see it from Meat Meatball Shop. You see it from all oh. sorts of these guys. No, no nobody, nobody mm. wants us to do it. Come on. No, you know it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We we're fo- we're focused, but no. Maybe one day. I don't know. But it's, it's not. It's not in our in our re- near future. You guys are sleeping out there. If you're having approached via Carota to do a tomato sauce. Those carbon guys, come on, they're great, but you need a Vera Crodi. We need that sauce on the on the shelf. Let's go. We have this new feature that we're asking authors. Um, I want you to talk about the final recipe in in your book because oftentimes that last recipe doesn't really get looked at. I've written a couple books, and and I, the last recipe is often not talked about in media. And your last recipe is uh, pasta frolla. It's sweet a sweet pa- a pastry dough. So let's give it some shine. That last recipe in the book. Pasta frolla. So Pasta I think fr- the last chapter is what, Rita, uh, winter, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's winter. It is, yeah. Right, so we're, in our mind, in our hearts, we're roasting chestnuts. We're, you know, what are we doing? We've got truffles, excuse me, we've got truffles out there. But uh, pasta frolla, um, crostata, raspberry crostata. Mm. Um, I think it's it's a basic. It's almost like yeah, it's, it's like something like a, you know, it's like a kind of a spaghetti you, you should have home. You know, you one of those make, staple yeah. doughs. You should make one, yeah, and yeah. it's simple and easy, and uh, you know, you don't need too many ingredients. Actually, no, normally you have all the ingredients you need at home. Yeah, to do that, so it doesn't take too long, and it's easy things to have at home. Yeah, crostatas are beautiful to make at home. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you get a brick of frolla dough with chunks of bright yellow butter in it, and you be careful not to work it too much and, yeah. you know, stop. But unlike the pasta water, you're going to dribble that in and dribble that in and be patient, but yeah. that's And you, you can freeze this dough, or does it have to be, like, made, you know, used within a certain amount of time in the fridge? You can freeze it. You can freeze it. Um, lastly, uh, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast— uh, if there was a dream cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of budget, meaning you have like unlimited money, or the burden of time, meaning you, your editor isn't ringing you up and and asking for the manuscript, each of you, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you first, Rita, what would that book project be? Would be a book with uh, a like ten, fifteen, whatever I can find in uh, recipe about each ingredients that. I love and season. So like, for instance, like uh, now we are in uh, fall, chestnut. Mm. I will do like uh, anything you can do with chestnut. I will do any recipe that you can do with chestnut. You know, like uh, roasted, uh, whatever, pasta, uh, boiled, whatever, any any kind. So I don't know if it would be a little boring, but uh, no. I think it uh, would be great. It'd be cool if you picked like unexpected like chestnuts. Would there be one other ingredient? Oh, I will take like uh, like now in in the fall. I will take, uh, for instance, I will take potatoes. There's, it seems like some it's always there, but fall and and you know it's mm-hmm. most like. Uh, and I will cook the potato in any way you, you you can imagine. Like the same with the pasta, fall pasta would be great. You know, like any anything you can do with the you know uh, pasta with the with in the fall ingredients. So that's yeah, Jody. Wow, I would pitch a project like, okay, we're going to eat from the the Alps down to, you know, the, the coast, uh, you know, to the tip of the boot and mm-hmm. uh, see if I could 
do three years of traveling and eating. <laughs> Through Italy, that's, <laughs> Through yeah. Italy, or yeah. I don't know. I'd probably come up with a, a, <laughs> even a better idea, but I'd, something like that, like, you know. I think it would be, I mean, you've done, you've grounded your, your work in careers in New York City, but clearly, you know, expanding outside of that, gaze might be cool, like, as a, as a project. Editors, are you listening here? <laughs> I'd love to hear that. I'd love to read that, read that book. Jody Williams and Rita Sodi, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for the great question. Tara Schuster, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really cool to catch up with you. And I want to, you know, your your, your background in, in television always makes me think that um, about the writer's room of a television show. I feel like I've talked to like Phil Rosenthal. I've talked to Gene Frazier on the show about writer's rooms. And um, give me your take. Like what makes a good writer's room food? So it's so, so funny that you ask about this because I feel like it's kind of the most important thing. And, you know, the time I've spent around writer's rooms, it's like the first thing you think about is what are we ordering for lunch? Like, what's the lunch order going to be? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you get a text message the night before being like, please look at this menu. We need your orders by 10 a.m. It's truly like the most important decision of the day is what are we going to have for lunch? Um, and I think I really appreciate a good salad situation or something somewhat healthful because the hours in TV can be so long. And let's say you're on set of a TV show, they have what's called crafty, like mm. craft services. So it's just full of junk, yeah. like M&Ms, Reese's Pieces, Frito-Lays, like things you absolutely should not be eating. And so you you can't do junk food in the writer's room or around, like I, I can't, cause I know I'm gonna- Yeah, you know away. you're gonna eat, it, eat that stuff and it's gonna crash you and you need to have like, it's like you're an athlete, right? You, you're like totally. sustaining yourself for this long run. What's the longest session you've had in a writer's room? I was working this summer. I mean, I, not that long yeah. because I've only been on the writing side of things for the past year. Um, but- you know, I think the shows at Comedy Central, they seemed I sat in on one of the writers rooms for Key and Peele and it was like a normal work day. Yeah. You know, I think they got in at like 10, left around five or six. You know, I I don't really I haven't really experienced the like put your whole life on hold. Like this is all we're doing. No. We're all in on the show. No. I haven't really seen that. Yeah. I feel like there's got to be work-life balance, especially a lot of it's being done on Zoom right now, I would imagine, a lot of writing writer's rooms, right, Where yeah, which is not fun a, for food. No, and I wonder what they're doing, actually, because one of the great perks of doing anything in entertainment is there are actual free lunches. <laughs> they abound. It's like one of right. the things I miss the most from uh, my former job. Um, so I feel like if you're on a Zoom writer's room, you're really missing out unless they let you expense your lunches, which I hope they do. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that they have some kind of like promo code for like let's seamless hope. or something. Yeah. Okay. Let's get real about food TV because food TV is typically extremely bad in my opinion, my my my, my single opinion. I feel mm -hmm. like uh, I, I want to know, like let's talk some shit about food TV. Like what makes food TV so bad? And then, of course, we'll go on the flip side and what makes it good. Food TV meaning shows that are about food. It can be about it can be a dramatized show about a food like a restaurant. 
Ah. Or, or it could be a documentary on Netflix or on or it could be competition. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, I feel I don't like things that are super, super serious unless it's really a drama. Like unless I've signed up for. Yeah. Oh, my God. Everything is going to go wrong. It's got dark music. Like I can sign up for that on my own. But then when you put it in like the context of food and now it's this overwrought, super self-important documentary about going to some far off land to find a secretive mushroom. Like, yeah, uh, okay. But I don't love when the treatment of it is so self-serious. I know. You know, it needs some levity, yeah. I think. The, need, the, the, the tone needs to balance out. I think the problem with food TV can be, um, yeah, overly – like either overly prescriptive or didactic, it just doesn't feel like it fits into the um, entertainment. It doesn't feel like entertainment. Yeah, and like you know, even for the more dramatic ones, even in drama, like something like Succession, there's comedy because yeah. there's comedy in life. There have to be moments of levity. So when it's so serious, it's also like I don't even know what this is. Like, can we can we vary it up a little bit? Have you had a succession moment in your life? Have you been on a private jet? Have you been to a party where there's like a whisper room? Have you, I mean, there's no. got to be some stories. <laughs> no, not at, sometimes I call it, I mean, not just me. Many people call it wealth porn because <laughs> I'll be watching it. And um, this character, Kendall, for example, who is super, if, if you haven't watched the show, he's he's sort of the weak one, the weak son who can't get anything right. Yeah. And he he rides in one scene on a motorcycle holding someone else who's actually driving the motorcycle and it's definitely a moment to be like wow he is so um incompetent but i was like damn that motorcycle is sick i wish i had that life like even when they're <laughs> like having these terrible moments yeah. i want that private jet i want i, I it, it it unleashes all of my worst capitalist greed yeah um the seeds within me i mean it, it's it's absolutely cringe in tone but also we crave that kind of life of luxury as human beings i feel Totally with you. Okay, so in Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies, your book, which I love. I mean, I, I haven't read the whole thing. I haven't had an opportunity to, but I feel like we were just ch- chatting off mic. I love the way it's formatted, and I think it's extremely smart. And you talk about the, your time at The Daily Show. Um, you were an intern or a, a young assistant there, and you ended up staying with the show because you managed the capsule coffee machine in a special way. Talk about that. I love this story. Yeah, that capsule coffee machine gave me my career, basically. I love that. Um, So I was an intern at The Daily Show. Obama was in office. I It, it was a complete fluke that I was there. I was having a real um, crisis moment of what am I going to do with the rest of my life right after college? And a friend said, you should apply. I got it. And what I noticed really quickly was that all the other interns were basically doing bits, like really loud bits and comedy and trying on jokes in a misguided attempt to Hmm. impress all the producers, like somehow they were going to get discovered when really they were supposed to be transcribing a tape. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like, so I kind of saw, okay, my lane that is so annoying. I am, I am annoyed by them. I can only imagine the producers are annoyed. So my lane is I'm just going to keep my head down do the work 
um, to the best of my ability, even this super terrible, it was like mostly video transcription and mostly go pick up these croissants. Mm -hmm. Um, one time it was pick up a bow for Jimmy Carter's daughter's gift bike. (laughs) Like, like weird. You're just like, okay. So great. Uh, Television yeah. is so weird. I worked in television. It's weird, man. Yeah, it's you're like, wait, in what other industry are you doing this? And it's vitally important. Like, like it's like a like life or death situation. And so I was always looking for, well, how can I proactively be helpful in this environment? And I noticed um that John Stewart, he before he went out, um, on stage, he always made himself a capsule coffee. It was after rehearsal, right before they taped the show, and he'd always make a capsule coffee, which I feel like he should have had a full-blown espresso bar and yeah. someone just serving him. But no, it was this janky, it wasn't even an espresso. It was this janky um capsule coffee machine that was out of water, broken, capsules not <laughs> around. Yeah, it was always a mess. And I realized, aha this is how I can make a difference. I can be the queen of this capsule coffee (laughs) machine. And so then I basically just became obsessed with making sure it was clean, fixing it when it was broken, always making sure the capsules were there. Oh, wow. Like making sure that the the right, the right brands were right there. Yeah. Yeah. And that it was fully stocked, you know, because I couldn't make a big contribution. You know, I wasn't a writer. I wasn't a producer. Couldn't make something big, but actually Coffee is so important to any creative environment, to any environment, period. So I really thought, well, this this for sure can be my contribution. Um, let me tell you, no one fought me for that job. <laughs> no one, no one yeah. wanted to do it. Um, and it got the attention of the producers who then got me a job at Comedy Central. And so, you know, the advice I always give to basically anyone at any point in your career is be the best at the worst. You know, those little things um, that nobody else wants to do that that you don't think we're going to bring you glamour, they might actually be the thing that sets you off in a completely different direction if you handle it, you know, with excellence. Yeah. And Um, and being savvy about knowing, you know, gatekeepers or like the bosses. And it's a good advice to know. To like manage up in a way, right? It's basically oh, managing totally. Up. Yeah. I mean, I do that to this day. Um, off mic, we were kind of talking about for my next book. Um, I'm doing all the prep work for it, all the press and that kind of thing. And I'm really having to look at my network and manage up to a ton of people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, try. You know, trying to be helpful in a non-transactional way, but also, hey, I'm gonna have a book soon. Yeah. You oh. do it your whole life, I so, feel like. What's the title of the book in February? Have you announced the it yet? Title, or is, is it? Yes. A, okay, good. It is Glow in the Fucking Dark. All right, funny. Yeah, I like your model. This is like clearly your personality. You're really cool. And it's it comes through both in the titles and in the writing. So I, oh, I think it's you. really cool. Um, I want to talk to you about coffee a little bit more. Do you have a coffee Please. ritual when you're in uh, the writer's room or when you're working on television? Uh, do you have any any rituals or any kind of brand of choice do you are you a coffee snob so to speak i am not a coffee snob in any way shape or form but i am a coffee defender lover Hmm. 
drinker. I get really annoyed when people tell me, well, you know, I don't drink coffee (laughs) as if they're saying like they're better than me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're not actually you're missing out. Um, And so I have a I have a coffee ritual that I've been doing. I don't know, the past 10 years with a capsule coffee machine, which means I'm not snobby at all. I actually really like Nespresso. Well, you're clearly uh, you you know you know your way around it. Clearly, yes, yeah, yes, totally. I'm like a technician. Yeah. Um, but after I wake up and meditate, the very next thing I do is I go to my Nespresso machine. I froth up some coconut almond milk in the frother. I have a particular um capsule that I'm really into. And then I I try to make like a witchy brew. So, you know, sometimes <laughs> I'll add like cinnamon. Sometimes like I play around with what kind of spices could I put in this? Um, what kind of milks could I use? And then I drink the coffee while I journal. Very so it's really a part of the ritual. It's definitely a ritual of writers. I, I love that you you clearly are 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 one of uh, the crew. Um, Tara, tell me you you you're not you know just a writer. You you are you are a television executive, and you ran ran the show at Comedy Central. And um, so clearly, you were doing meetings um, with food in, involved. So I got to ask. I like I like to ask an executive. Give me a couple of your favorite power meeting lunch spots in L.A. and New York. Are there any places oh, that you good, love to book? Good question. Um, and to be clear, I wasn't running the show at Comedy Central, but I like to think that I had a worthy contribution and I um, got to do some really cool things and have a lot of responsibility. You were executive producer of uh, Keen Peel, great show, so many memorable bits. And uh, yeah. uh, I it, mean, I don't know, your, your resume, your executive in the title, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to be sensitive to that there were there were people above me. Appreciate the um, honesty, transparency. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I feel good about what I did, too. So I'm like, yeah, that's good, too. Um, so I want to say Chaconis is a big one. Yeah. On uh, I guess that's on third or is that on Beverly? Uh, I think it's on. Uh, I think it's on Melrose. It's on Melrose and Robertson, basically. Okay. Up um, by some of the agencies are up there. I don't know if there's many agencies. Yeah. It's more like the high class shopping. Yeah. Okay. Like is right there. And that's sort of a nexus of power. Um, having lunch at the four seasons. Yeah. Big deal. But I don't love the food. Don't tell anybody. Nah. But I don't love the food there. Um for a minute, Salt's Cure was very popular mm-hmm. because it's in Hollywood. It's really tasty, healthful options. It's also cool. It's kind of like a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, those are all. Those would have been. Those are my spots. Those are and some then spots. Ev- yeah. Every once in a while, Republic. Because just because that's my favorite restaurant. Period. So I would try to divert meetings. Oh, I to love. Republic. Yeah, Margie Mansky got a shout out the chef, and also it's close to where you live, so you're it's yes. it's in your hood. So what about New York? Uh, when you're in New York, um, there's a different kind of level, different vibe. I think probably actors and executives want to meet at different places. Do you have any spots? Yeah. Well, when I'm in New York, it's always downtown. Yeah, you know, exactly. I've rarely the the Comedy Central offices are um, close to Soho. Even I I lived in the West Village. I've never met someone for lunch uptown. Um, but 
you know, if we're doing like a, a dinner with a writer who I'm like kind of trying to impress, maybe I'll take them to Blue Ribbon Sushi, mm-hmm. the original, mm-hmm. just because it's such a cool little gem of a spot. On Bedford down there, that one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then towards um, the end of being at Comedy Central, there was a place, Ultra Paradiso. Yeah, right on. Ultra, that place was really great. And I tr- I basically tried to make that my office. Yeah. Just go there on repeat. Did you lean into the expense account a little bit? Uh, yeah. I mean, duh. <laughs> with, with, duh, with these restaurants? Are you yeah, kidding me? Yeah, I mean. I don't, to be clear, I don't eat at any of these places anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no. Every once in a while, I'm being facetious. No. But yeah, you need an expense account to just be eating. It's so weird. As an executive, you basically eat at these kinds of restaurants, lunch and dinner, every day of the week. Yeah. Like, it's not, it loses all of its specialness because... A lot of times you're actually you're trying to impress like let's say it's like a young writer who they yeah. want a meal that's expensed. You know, that's yeah. the that's part of it. Um so you try to pick really nice places. Uh so it's definitely a part of it. I feel like you definitely want to um have an escape route cuz my next question is is tell me has there been like a, a meeting like a general or any kind of meeting um that has just gone so poorly that you just had to bail like just bail. <laughs> I wish I would bail. <laughs> same in same in dating. I don't know how to get up and be like, oh, this is enough. <laughs> it I really need to learn. Um, I actually texted a friend about dating. How do you leave? If I know this is a, a disaster, how do you leave? How do you leave? But yeah, like no, yeah. do you do you just say, Oh, I, I'm not feeling well. I've got to go. I, you know, in generals, I've had so a general meeting. That's a big part of my job was to meet uh, writers and comedians and directors, anybody in entertainment. And a, a, a big responsibility of mine was to have like a running list of these are the coolest people. These are the people I think vibe with our tone. <laughs> yeah. You know, but some meetings you do as favors and some are God awful, like people showing up in costumes unable to talk to you like in their real voice in like they're doing some method they are now the dragon you know you're absolutely nightmare material this is why writing (laughs) for television is so cringe in some ways to me sorry no offense no you and the, the reason I've always waited out those meetings is at the same time this is this person's dream this is their passion. They really want to do it. And unless it's like unsafe in some way or a boundary has been crossed, which has happened. Uh-oh. And I'm, I don't even think I really left. Now I would leave. Yeah. Now as more of an adult, I would be like, well, thank you very much. And good night. Yeah. Um, but I sat through all of the generals oh never my. left one well it's part of your job and i guess you have to be respectful for the representation um i do listen to script notes so i have a little bit of like intel into like the the, the behind the scenes how the sausage yeah. is made respect those guys did you do lights out with david spade i sure did that show was great i have to give it credit Yay! really good show got canceled way too early david spade is a genius and i thought the format was really cool so. Well, oh my God. Shout out. Thank you so much. I worked so hard on that show and yeah. I was devastated. It was truly one of the more terrible moments I've had was when it was canceled um, due to COVID reasons. COVID, yeah, exactly. Yeah, COVID killed it. But um, 
David is truly one of the nicest, most gentlemanly, cool guys I've ever met. He is so funny. Just being next to him, he's funny. And um, we worked really hard on trying to, on, on the format. That's yeah. exactly the thing that we worked really hard on. And it was a bummer that it it went away. Yeah, I thought it was a bold move to do that kind of formatted show, um, obviously in Comedy Central, which is known mostly for scripted stuff. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to go in this direction with the, with the food podcast, no, but I... you just made <laughs> my month. Oh, like, man. nobody brings up Lights Out. Oh, me, it's, it's so. a good show. I, I just, I, I like, I like some of that late night comedy and, and I like him. I, I think he clearly has a great connection with his guests. Um yeah. I want to know, like, what is, in your opinion, this is really holding a lot of gravity. What's the best television show on t- on, on the mm. air right now? Well, I already mentioned it. It is 100% succession. Yeah. That show is so well-written, so beautifully performed. Every set is unbelievably detailed. And it's funny. Yeah. It is laugh-out-loud funny. I-, I do not know how they... They walk this great line in tone. It's I don't even care what the plot is because yeah. I'm so obsessed with the characters. Um, yeah. I love it. Yeah, hard agree. Have you have you caught Industry yet on HBO? No. That, oh, it's on HBO. Yeah, Industry is uh, is a British show. It's it's um, based in that world of finance, um, and it uses a lot of succession style techniques in the storytelling i'll say it's great i gotta check that out especially because who knows when the next season of succession oh my god they take their time could be years from now i know well then we ask all guests in the taste podcast if you could write a dream book like a food book we'll say because i know you you don't write cookbooks but let's just say you want to write a cookbook or a food culture book yeah without the burden of of time meaning you don't have a deadline or the burden of budget meaning you have unlimited amount of money yeah. What would that book be? I feel like this is probably a very obvious answer, but it would be a travel book of going to different places and writing about the foods and the cultures, maybe particularly in the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, because I haven't read that, you know, when you're watching a travel show, they're like, it's Paris, it's Berlin. But I'm really curious more about the Middle East. And I spent some time there this summer. And the food was out of this world. Amazing. Blow your mind. Delicious. And like these little, you know, little places um, that like a a small falafel shop in mm. the city of Akko, which is the north of Israel. It's like a teensy town and you're, and you're eating the falafel and you're like, this might be the best falafel I've ever had, and it costs like five dollars. <laughs> I love so, Akko. It's a great little town. I've, I've stayed oh, there you've before. Been. Oh, definitely. I've been to Akko and Haifa. I've been north. Yeah, I love um, it out there. Akko has an, an incredible restaurant. Have, did you go to Uriburi? Of course. Oh, I became okay. Let me tell you this. So Uriburi is Uri is known as one of the best chefs. Yeah, in Uri Israel. Jeremias. Yeah. Yes, and he also owns a hotel there that I was staying. Oh, in. you stayed the Effendi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like a princess. Yeah. Tr- like truly, I was on a honeymoon with myself. Um, only felt bad when I got the bill <laughs> later oh, that yeah. month, and I was like, "Oh man, yeah, that they, was crazy." They stuck me. it with you. Yeah, I, I've yeah. St- I've got I had the pleasure of staying there. I, I uh, I'll link to we, we I wrote a profile of, of Uri. Um, oh, maybe like five years ago. 
Oh, amazing. So he's this amazing man. And he saw that I was eating alone. I was on a solo trip and I had cool. booked a few reservations there. So he started just sending me small tastes of most things on the menu so that I didn't have to order like one entree and then that's all I ate. So I ended up trying so much of the menu, including a salmon, a raw salmon that had been marinated in something and wasabi ice cream yep. that I can still taste. And I, I can see it. I can taste it. I want it right in this moment. I love that you had that dish. It's it's one of his trademarks. It's such a cool dish. And Uri, is, uh, is he still rocking the beard? Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. He's got a look. What a cool yes, memory, Tara. Like, I, I think uh, Akko is a great place to visit. Yeah, it's a definitely, if you're in Israel or that region, totally worth going and really worth staying at the Effendi yeah, once in your life. It definitely. was a special place. No SponCon here. Appreciate it. <laughs> Tara Schuster, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.